The Athletic. Hello and welcome to this week's Zonal Marking podcast where it's time to finish building our Zonal Marking colossal glossary with a couple of football apostles, Michael Cox and Tom Warville <laughs> from The Athletic joining me, Ali Maxwell, on this week's pod. How are we doing today, guys? Good, thank you, Ali. Yeah, all good, thanks, Ali. Good to have you back. It's good to be back. It's really good to be back. Having said that, I massively enjoyed listening to just the two of you on this pod last week. I was hoping for more European Super League content. No, I absolutely wasn't. I was I was delighted that you provided just the tonic, uh, talking through Warville's magnum opus on crossing. Uh, Michael, I thought you did uh, a great job steering the ship. No surprise really given your surname, of course, and the connotations that that has in the water-based world. <laughs> uh, but as mentioned today, it's time to finish off the glossary. Uh, for those who are tuning in for the first, second, third time, you may have missed that back in January, we had a really in-depth glossary of terms for midfield players provided by Tom and Michael. In March, we went for the attacking players and the glossary of terms, positions, roles. Now it's time to finish it off. Uh, finish off our footballing positions and roles style guide, if you will, with those in the back line and straight into it with the easiest question of the lot. Is it fair to say, guys, that we have no objections on exactly what constitutes a centre-back? Yeah, I, uh, I'm happy with centre-back as a term. <laughs> I think everyone knows what it means, so not too much to add on that particular one. Well, there's more controversy to come, specifically from you, Michael. So we, we wanted to start with an easy one. I mean, Tom, let's add a little bit more depth to this question because in previous glossary podcasts, there's been a lot of discussion about when is a position not a role when is a role not a position and I suppose in terms of centre-back it's fairly clear that that is one side of that debate yeah absolutely I mean um, I think data when we come to looking at at centre-backs and maybe across the back line as a whole is is useful to look at the style of defenders and I think we mentioned in the past that it's actually uh, it's probably the toughest set of positions to actually look at how good a certain player is and just because we don't measure a lot of the things that uh, you know defenders do which have an impact on the game and their ability to kind of manage and, and control space which really is what what a lot of defending is about so yeah that's uh, that's one of the the key things but no I, I think that we can get a good grasp on style I mean we saw it with the the game against the game between Leicester and Crystal Palace on Monday night that was a great example of Wesley Fofana being a very aggressive centre-back who steps out of the back line sometimes to the cost of his, his team in terms of conceding chances and goals and that's one style of centre-back and then on the other side we've got the the kind of Tyro Mings, Esri Comte mould, which just never really step out at all. And I think you've got all the the colours in between that, as, as it were. So, yeah, really interesting that for us with data and centre-backs, it's probably more of a stylistic thing at the moment than a real quality thing. So could you, or would you, I suppose, is there benefit in using data to try and identify the style of a centre-back? Obviously, as with any position, different players have different qualities and interpret their position and their role in, in different ways. So for a, a centre-back, I'm thinking whether they are a ball-playing centre-back or more agricultural on the ball, whether they are a, a ball winner, someone who looks to, to get tight and win the ball back, or whether they're more in, in the covering defender mould. I sort of wonder whether that might be quite good to use the data to start identifying types of player. But then, of course, we could be misled by the instructions that the player's are given by their manager. And that's where I find it a bit of a grey area there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and really, we can only really measure what we see, right? And, uh, you know, there's certain players like, say, James Tarkovsky at Burnley, whose role is very much the kind of meat and potatoes block and, and clear. And if you were to move him into a team, say, you know, Liverpool, we maybe haven't seen a lot of the situations he'd be put into if he were to play in that high line at Burnley. So I think you've, you know, you can only measure, like I said, what you, what you can see. And there are probably examples of Tarkovsky having to defend in those situations, but they're probably few and far between really, which I think is why a lot of, a lot of the benefits of defending has to be, you know, come from coaching and, uh, and the coach having a real impact on helping a player play in, in a new back line with, with new defensive partners. But Michael, when I think about centre-back specifically and how the instructions that the manager gives them might impact their uh, stats, their numbers, and therefore skew what sort of a player we think that is. I I do turn to Liverpool and, well, certainly before the injuries this season, that partnership between Van Dijk and Joe Gomez, where it, it feels like because Van Dijk is the best defender in the world, Paul Gomez, in a sense, has to be his foil in a way that feels quite unusual for a centre-back partnership and feels almost more of a a striker type thing. You know, a a strike partnership where there's one elite goalscorer and his partner would generally try and have some instructions and some uh, skill a skill set that would complement that player. Is that unusual to you? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think you're right about Liverpool. Gomez obviously is very useful for that high line because he's got the pace. Van Dijk's certainly not slow, but I think the, you know, the extent of Liverpool's high line means they probably needed an even quicker player to play alongside him. And, and like you say, it's always about partnership. I think back to Manchester City, and I think that for years they had company there who was very good in some areas of the game, but I'm not sure they ever really got a great partner alongside him. I mean, off the top of your head, who do you think of as company's centre-back partner? They had five or six players there, and I think really they never found the right partnership, whereas this season I would say they have with Stones and Diaz because I think they're more... Uh, complementary together so yeah it's an interesting point about Liverpool does the data suggest that that Stones and Diaz partnership has a really nice yin and yang Tom one player does a certain thing the other fills the gaps yeah it's not really something I've I've looked into too much but uh, I mean uh, it's an interesting one especially with with players who play together so often I kind of caught some some heat early in the season because looking at Diaz on his own he doesn't look incredible but then again the whole point of a defender isn't to kind of be individually good it's to it's for the benefit of the team right and you look at the quality of chances Man City were conceding and I think they're you know the second best team in the league at the moment behind Chelsea so there are and I don't think there's been a ton of analysis in this area and there's probably a lot of scope to do you know look at the numbers behind it but looking at the numbers behind partnerships instead of just individuals I think you've got individual players like like Stones and Diaz who on their own maybe don't look great but the combination of the two leads to the side being really solid uh, defensively at, at the back Okay well I've already veered a little away from a, a glossary of terms just because I wanted to pick your brain on on something that I was thinking about in preparation. But let's get back to it. Uh, Michael, within the realm of the centre-back, I'd love to talk about sweepers and liberos, or liberi, as I'm sure it it should be in its native language. Just talk me through these two terms, sweeper and libero. Where do they originate from? And what is the difference between the two terms, if any? I don't think there's too much difference between the two terms. I mean, I'd only ever use the Italian word if, if we're talking about Italian player, because obviously that's how they became to be known. I mean, originally, really, in terms of the mainstream, it was an Italian idea. It was when you use man markers and then you would have a spare man behind who was free. Obviously, that's the Italian word for free. And so I guess that's when we talked earlier about centre-backs. I guess the only ever 
the only other word I, I ever really would or used to hear said about centre backs was sometimes you would hear the word stopper, which you don't really hear anymore. But that in in Italy, that was the player who wasn't the libero. That was the man marker. It was a real physical player. So I guess you know if you sweep as someone like Connor Cody, your stopper would be Willy Bolly. You know, a, a big, strong, physical player. And then it became. I mean, when it, when it was kind of imported by German football managers. Then they realised that actually not only is this player free without the ball, he's generally free with the ball. And then that player became more of a playmaker. So Franz Beckenbauer with you know was was a classic sweeper who was renowned, you know, as much for his ability and possession as for his defensive ability. And and that hadn't really been a big thing in the Italian school. So when we talk about a sweeper, there's two different things going on. It's one, they're free from defensive duties, and two, I think increasing now, obviously more than ever they're expected to start attacks. I'm glad you brought up Beckenbauer because it feels to me, we in the media and those who like to talk a lot about football and individual players, player comparisons are a very popular way of trying to um, get across the, the the role or even the, the skill set of a player that you're talking about. And it feels like for centre-backs, the name Beckenbauer gets used a lot. And sometimes, you know, bastardized into forming part of that player's name as well. You know how we love to to make up these terrible nicknames these days. I mean, Michael, I don't imagine you're the sort of person that really stretches to make these player comparisons. But if I said to you, this modern centre-back, you know, he's like the modern day Beckenbauer. What exactly do you think I would mean by that? I mean, he had uh, unusual level of composure and elegance in possession for a centre-back at that time. I mean, it's funny, we talk about ball-playing defenders as if it's always a modern thing, and yet you do go back to the 60s, for example, and people would say about Bobby Moore, people said Bobby Moore was really good in possession. And I think what just happens is the level of good in possession just gets better and better over time. But yeah, I mean, certainly if you watch any of those German World Cup matches, it is quite striking the extent to which he's dictating the play. And of course, dictating the play in a German side which was not really ever renowned for great elegance and great passing quality. It was always considered, you know, they always considered a a footballing machine who would get the job done. But of course, Beckenbauer was, was a completely different player and, you know, was around at the time of Cruyff and, you know, some of those Germany against Holland games, people would talk about these are the best two players in the world and and talk about them in a a kind of similar way, which yeah, for a centre back was, Obviously, pretty unusual at that time, I would imagine. Mm. I mean, the other, the, the second most used comparison, this is on my own measurements, behind Beckenbauer, is not a former player. It's actually a make of car, and that is a, a Rolls Royce. That gets you, that gets used way too much, doesn't it? Yeah, I, uh, cars is not my thing. I, I have no preference for Rolls Royces over any other <laughs> brand of car, which uh, I could not afford. But yeah, I, I do. It's a real punditry thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, they always use the word real, <laughs> real Rolls Royce of a defender. Yeah, uh, It's one of those things that irritates you, but if, not, if you never heard it again, <laughs> you'd be kind of sad, wouldn't you? It's quite nice to hear it every now and then. I think there's a very specific and quite subtle attribute of a Rolls Royce defender, which is someone who doesn't sprint very often or doesn't look to sprint very often. There, there has to be a level of composure and calmness. Whether that has anything to do with the Rolls Royce as a car or an engine, I don't know, because I don't think any of us are particularly strong on that front. And that's why we're sticking to football and football tactics. Uh, Michael, is it ever appropriate nowadays 
to use the word sweeper or dare I say it libero in the Italian game in the modern game. Yeah, I think sometimes. I mean, there's, there's two things going on here. One is that really man marking doesn't happen that much anymore. I mean, Bielsa's leads obviously a an exception to that. And so when they play a spare man in a three-man defence, I think it's appropriate. But even away from man marking, I mean, David Luiz, when he played in the middle of Chelsea's back three, he very much felt like a spare man. And I think we all agree, everyone agrees, that he's so much better in that role than when he's playing in a back four. He's okay in a back four, but when he's not having to make judgments about how close to stick to a man whether to tackle him high up the pitch. I think he's much better when he can take a step back. And of course, he's got the creative qualities as well. Um, you know, his diagonal passes, is, is, even by the standards of modern centre-backs, is, is something quite special. The other obvious player, and I mentioned him earlier, was, uh, is Connor Cody at Wolves. And he's another one who, obviously, Wolves have, have tried to move away from a, a back three this season. And, and Cody really just doesn't look comfortable in it. He is very much a converted midfielder, you know, former holding midfielder. Uh, now very comfortable at the back and really what he brings is all about his diagonal passing and on that note I was surprised uh, to watch Liverpool against Newcastle at the weekend and for the last 20-25 minutes Steve Bruce moved John Joe Shelby back into the middle of a back three which um, I was not expecting but he is a player who I mean his diagonal passes are very good I don't, I'm not sure he's a, a great all-round midfielder in other aspects but he has got some kind of Cody qualities within him. Yeah. I think. So, so I, with the other with the other two centre backs, I mean, I know this was only a, a brief foray into this experiment, but was the idea that the other two centre backs would, you know, would be the the ball winners, if you will, the stoppers, dare I say it, and and Shelby as much as possible would 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 try not to be involved in any defensive actions, but would be happy to to pick up the ball. At, well, in the very last line, and play long balls forward to 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 try and disrupt Liverpool that way, rather than you know trying to get on the ball in a congested midfield area. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's an interesting thing against Liverpool, isn't it? I mean, this was like you say, it was just the last twenty minutes. Liverpool were not at their frantic, energetic best. But if you have got a side like Liverpool who's pressing high up, and you're really struggling to get the ball from defence to midfield, why not play John Joe Shelby there, and he can play the longer passes too. Sam Maximan and who else was playing? Almiron, Callum Wilson came on, whoever was playing. There was some logic in that. So yeah, but yeah I mean, I'd, I'd love to see it from the start of a game. I mean, Newcastle are pretty much safe now, I would say. So I think we're into the stage where you might as well, if Steve Bruce is listening, you might as well experiment, Steve. He's probably not, but uh, <laughs> there you go. I think the biggest issue, I mean, we're, we're going off on a bit of a tangent in this Newcastle game, but if you looked at how Newcastle were trying to build up, they were so bad at trying to do it. And I think this is where you ha- you know, you know, try and build up with a player whose ability isn't you know, comfort on the ball and, and you know, a Rolls-Royce player like we've been talking about. And you kind of, you bring another player in to cover up for those deficiencies. And I think that is just like a very key thing with a lot of a lot of football and positions and uh, and tactics is just kind of like shifting around the deficiencies somewhere else or covering covering them up with moving a player into the back line and making it maybe you know more space on the wings for the diagonal balls for Shelby to actually progress the ball upfield so I thought that was uh yeah like Mike was saying I don't think you want to maybe do it for a whole game the same way Connor Cody is at the back and he's flanked by two uh, arguably more athletic centre-backs because he is you know bad in that area himself so um yeah, I think it, nevertheless, if, if Newcastle are fine on the last day of the season, I think against Fulham, um, I, I, you know that might be my game of choice. Just watching John Joe Selby getting picked off at the uh, at the back. Moving on, Michael to well, 
when a sweeper or a libero was not involved in the old days. It was traditionally called a flat back four. Uh, we don't hear that phrase too much anymore. No, we don't. I, I always quite like that. And yeah, that was when there was a bit of a debate between playing with a sweeper and playing without one, particularly in the 90s, uh, when German and Italian sides generally still played with a, a sweeper. And if you didn't have a sweeper, then your your back four was flat. And the you know it's, it sounds obvious, but the emphasis on flat was the fact you're playing an offside trap. Because your defence had to be flat. If you're playing a sweeper, obviously, you can't play offside. So, yeah, the, the flat back four is, is, is almost established. Everyone uses it now, so we don't even say flat. And, of course, now the fullbacks are pushed higher and higher in possession. They're less flat than they ever before. They, than they ever were. But, of course, yeah, without the ball, pretty much every side will play some level of offside trap. Okay, and... In a back five or a back three, I'm, I'm frustrated with myself because I talk about football a lot on various podcasts and I still haven't worked out whether to whether to describe a team such as Wild as Sheffield United or Conte's Inter Milan as playing three at the back or five at the back. So could we, Michael, I'm looking at you here, could we definitively say, just so I stop basically giving all the options, could we definitively pick one here? Well, I mean, they're usually three with the ball and five without the ball, aren't they? I mean, it. I think there are. I think there are some examples where it's definitely a five. I mean, Bruce's Newcastle when they play that is that's definitely a five. Um, and when you see a Guardiola side playing that system, it's is very clearly a three. So I guess it, it depends a lot about the possession share, doesn't it? Just naturally. But yeah, it's one of those where you you have to say both, and then you have to say whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Okay. The back three or back five, whatever you want to call it. I'm going to stick with yeah. three at the back. And and within a three at the back formation, obviously, you have the central centre-back and then two either side of him. And I wonder if we call them wide centre-backs. doesn't seem like something that's caught on, but with the prevalence of this type of player, maybe it's something that we need a name for. Yeah, I can't really think of what we're meant to call them. I mean, wide centre-back seems fine to me. If you say left or right, you always seemingly have to say sided, left-sided centre-back, or outside centre-back works. I mean, it's funny, really, we don't use full-backs for those positions. Because, I mean, back in the day, full-backs were the two in a 2-3-5. They were fully back. And then when the centre-halves dropped back in from midfield to play between them, they moved out wide. So the full-backs are now the ones out wide. But if it's a three and there's only one centre-back between them, can we not call them full-backs? It feels wrong to do so, I appreciate. But... We're too far down the line here. But essentially, yeah. essentially, the, the language of football tactics, Michael, it feels like you're suggesting didn't really evolve with football tactics itself, which is frustrating in hindsight. Yeah, I agree. I mean, certainly the... I mean, if has Piliqueta's playing on the right of a back three, it feels like you can call him a full-back. I wouldn't do it because people would get annoyed and correct me, but I feel like we should shift towards that model. <laughs> You've always been very worried about what people think about the things that you say. Um, Tom, I must admit, this this revelation from Michael about what a fullback was previously compared to what we see it as now has slightly rattled me. The more I think about it, listening to you guys kind of talk about it, it, it just makes no sense, does it? Full back, I guess, means fully back. And yet, how many full backs do we describe as attacking and how many actually are, are remotely in, inside their own half that much these days on, on high possession teams? So, um, yeah, it's uh, maybe we, we need to actually write some new pages of the dictionary, let alone the, the glossary of, uh, of football, football tactics. But, but, um, but we can't go, what? I would like to do, 
but a bit like Michael maybe don't have the uh, the courage to do is go fully rogue on this podcast to start something new and start describing a team playing three at the back. Let's use Sheffield United under Wilder, for example, as having one centre-back, two full-backs and two wing-backs, the full-backs being your Basham's and your O'Connell's. Uh, that, that could be something that we could at least attempt to do and try and insert ourselves even further into the footballing zeitgeist. Yeah, the I think from kind of like data terms, a lot of suppliers will label that the one in the middle of a back three as a central defender, and then the other two will be a left centre back and a, a right centre back. But I'm definitely I'm more than happy to to get on the left full back and right full back in a in a back three and stick to the central defender as well. And again, on a separate note, the difference between a flat back four, if you will, and a three at the back formation is that we can get a little confused between full backs and wing backs, can't we? Uh, are we too guilty of thinking of a full back and a wing back as roughly the same position, even though it's clear in the modern game that there are certain players that excel at one and not in the other? Yeah, I think you're right. My editor keeps on asking me to do an article about this and I don't quite know how to approach it, but yeah, I, I agree with the, or, uh, with the implication of your question, I mean, there's a couple of obvious examples. Marcus Alonso, I think, is the best example. He's a very good, I think he's an excellent wing back um, because he offers certain qualities, particularly arriving at the back post to score headers, which is certainly not something you would ever say about fullback. But, you know, if you're playing in 3 4 3, especially when he was playing behind Hazard and Hazard was always coming inside to become a number 10, he had to provide all the left sided width and a goal scoring threat. And he did that really well. But without the ball in one on one situations, he's. I mean, I think he's one of the worst players you can you can find in the Premier League in terms of that. So, yeah, he's certainly a very good example. Matt Doherty is probably more topical because he went from Wolves. Um, you know, we spoke about Cody before, who doesn't look comfortable in a four. And Matt Doherty, since he moved side, of course, has not looked comfortable in a four himself. I think there's maybe some other nuances with him, actually. I think he played quite a particular role at Wolves. I don't really think of him as, as overlapping a lot. I think what his game was about was playing give and goes and coming inside and often they had someone like Traore who was hugging the touchline ahead of him. So I think he's had quite a big shift and, and hasn't really come off since he moved to Spurs. Another one I think is worth pointing out is Danny Alves who, I mean, one of the best attacking right backs of all time. But when I saw him at wing back, he never really looked comfortable. It was almost like he received the ball too high up the pitch and actually he wanted to come on to play uh, and kind of have a better field of vision was that, when he was receiving the ball. When, when would you have seen Alves play wing-back? Did, did he ever play that role in, in a Barcelona side? I imagine probably not, but you could see why later on his, in his career, you know, he might have been placed in that role because of his attacking qualities. Yeah, he, he did it on occasion in Barcelona. I mean, Guardiola, third and, and particularly fourth season, he was often playing through at the back. And that in his fourth season, Alves a little bit fell out of favour and I think was left out of a couple of really big games towards the end of Guardiola's time there. But yeah, it's been more, uh, I mean, more PSG and, and Juventus. I mean, Juventus is interesting side because they often play like a hybrid system. So they'll have a, a maybe a left back who is really kind of coming inside to play as part of a back three. Um, and then a, a right back who pushes on and becomes a wing back. And I just, when he had that extra license, and to, to be fair, this was towards the end of his career as well when he wasn't as mobile, but he was the, the player you would think of more than anyone else as a perfect wing-back, as Cafu and Roberto Carlos were for Brazil in 2002, for example. But Alves, I just never thought it quite suited him. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com 
slash courtside to learn more. Tom, in terms of Premier League players this season, there aren't that many teams actually playing a, a three at the back system. Uh, certainly now that the deck of cards of Wilder and Sheffield United has come tumbling down. Nuno, as Michael mentioned, has been trying to to progress Wolves into a, a, a flat back four. Uh, I'm really enjoying using that expression on this pod. But I mean, who are the, the Premier League's premier wingbacks in in a in a three at the back system this season? Yeah, this season it's Matt Ritchie and Jacob Murphy for for Newcastle. We've got the most minutes at wing back. I think it's around six fifty to seven hundred each. So that's really not not a lot considering that's the most by any player at at wing back. Um, and, and last season I think it was Ender Stevens and George Baldock, and they've had kind of injury issues and change of system at Sheffield United, like you say. So really, it's um, maybe it's just something that we're seeing a little bit more. Which you know Chelsea's a good example where I think Ben Chilwell's last six or seven games have seen him line up at wing back. Um, so uh, perhaps it's it's more just down to the fact that the three at the back is a system which hasn't been used a ton unless it's of late and that's why we've not really seen um, a lot of players play in that position and not a lot play for a lot of minutes either. And, and what's your take Tom on why certain players would excel as a wing back but not as a full back? I think that with a wing back you want someone who's got a high enough attacking ceiling to benefit from from kind of license to go forward and attack the box more and get forward more and in, you know, in that example, you have someone like Callum hudson Adoy, who recently has been used as that kind of right wing back with Chelsea under Tuchel. And he's really good as a wing back because you limit his defensive responsibilities and limit what he actually needs to do going backwards. And probably Adama Traore, when he plays that, instead of that kind of you know inside forward position for for Wolves last season, he would be one of those wing backs. And I think it's probably the same for, for him. Um, I've just noticed I've written Adam Traore in the script here, which is a completely different player. And then similarly, on the, on the flip side, it's probably someone whose skill set is wasted if they're required to do less defending. And I think there's someone like, I mean, Wan-Bissaka here is, is a good example. Maybe even Ben Davis as well, who you would never really see. Let's say he can play left back. He's, he's competent to play that role. But if Spurs were to move to a back five back three you would usually see him occupy that left center back spot and not be the left wing back himself and I think that's because he he doesn't have enough going forwards to attack um, but he's probably a better defender in a three than he is in a a kind of attacker um, going forwards in that in that situation Adam Traore the the Sunday league version of Adama Traore some similarities in that he does repeatedly get to the byline although his crosses almost always are sliced out for a goal kick he certainly doesn't wear oil on his shoulders and arms to make it harder for defenders to uh, to grab hold of him but he does wear a lot of deep heat so you know different lotions for different players uh, Michael you like to slip the phrase halfback in every now and then and this is a really interesting one for me because as a football manager player a halfback is a role on the game that is quite specific to the defensive midfield position and involves dropping in between centre-backs to pick up the ball and dictate play, but in the defensive zone, sitting in front of the back four and, and being a bit of a screener in that sense. By the way, you talk about the word halfback, drawing on your knowledge of tactical history is very different indeed. I had no idea about that, uh, uh, the football manager definition. Not entirely sure about that. I mean, yeah, so the whole halfback... Like, Again, if you go back to the two-three-five formation, the fullbacks were the back two, the halfbacks were the midfield three essentially, and then you had five up front. And you know, as we've said previously, you know those players, as formations developed, dropped back in. But when you look at what the Guardiola fullbacks are doing when they're coming inside, I mean, they start as fullbacks and then they move into those positions to basically form three-man midfield in front of two centre backs. So 
they're essentially playing the same role that you would get in that old pyramid 235 formation so i just think it makes sense i just think that's what the word always meant and obviously you didn't really have many players in those positions for decades and now it's come back and i mean we've, we've talked before about you know the german use of the word half spaces that's because they were the spaces where the the half players where the half backs in that sense so it just seems reasonable to me to use though that phrase for Zinchenko or Cancelo or whoever's playing that you say in terms of Cancelo and Zinchenko and probably not too many other modern players Tom because well City and Pep they just do things a bit differently in this regard yeah absolutely um Joshua Kimmich maybe is one that we could add to that that group as well but um yeah on, on Cancelo I mean I'm working on a piece at the moment we're looking at City's passes this season the different types and it's a, a similar article to one I did last year um, in Liverpool's kind of title parade and he's one of the more fascinating players because of just the way that if you look at the different types of passes he makes and the volume of them in these different groups that I've I've devised the most similar players to him are Bernardo Silva Pascal Gross and Scott McTominay which all are <laughs> very different players and yet he these are the guys that he's most similar to. So it just shows you kind of how how much he is. I guess he's he's Pep's Frankenstein in, in 2020-21, really, where he's just a, a hodgepodge creation, which he's very useful for the team. Um, but like Michael says, he's, he's playing that halfback role. Um, and that, to me, is probably very much a, a role. If we go back to the, uh, the idea of kind of roles and, and positions, it's the role of him, normally a, a right back, but then, you know, comes in field and, and provides that, central presence for, for City. Interesting. Now, other people, Michael, I've seen use the phrase inverted fullback or inverted wingbacks for quite specifically this City side and, and when these fullbacks or wingbacks are moving inside in order to become part of a, a midfield or more of a central midfield in possession. Now, as the creator, as the godfather of the term <laughs> inverted wingers, as we know that you are, are you allowing this? Are you having it? No, I want to see them on opposite flanks. You know, for me, it's got to be a left footer, a right back and a, a right footer, a left back, which I've never seen, but it feels like it could happen sometime. I mean... If we talk about Cancelo, I mean, Cancelo, I think he's more creative when he plays left back because he can come inside and obviously can shoot for goal. He did that in the League Cup final of the weekend. If they were to play a left footer on the right, then absolutely. But I haven't seen it yet. I mean, it's interesting Tom mentions Gross. I've seen Gross playing a very strange role this year for Brighton where he starts as a wing back and comes inside to become a central midfielder, albeit he's doing it from the right. And he's a very good crosser or passer from that inside right position. But if they were to, you know, use a left footer there, maybe again, they could be more creative. So... I can see it happening. I mean, Wolves have played with, if you like, inverted wide centre-backs. I think we discussed that previously on this podcast, where they had a left footer on the right and, and a right footer on the left. And in one of the games, can't remember which one it was, because all matches seem to blur into one for me this season, because they all just seem the same. But um, they switched at half-time. So it was clearly a tactical thing that Nuno didn't quite think was going to plan. But uh, I never completely understood the reason for it, I must say. I wonder how many more... I mean, it's a bit like a... It's as if this podcast has been put into a random phrase generator, inverted wide centre-backs. I wonder how many more <laughs> adjectives we could put in front of a noun in order to create a role that actually makes a bit of sense. That's uh, maybe something we can get into when we've got a bit more free time. Uh, tell us a little bit about the phrase centre-half, Michael, because people often use this interchangeably with centre-back. I think sometimes just in order to have a synonym, just to have a different word or phrase to <laughs> yeah. use. That's, again, historically 
doesn't really stack up. Yeah, the, the second mentioned thing is probably quite strong on this one, isn't it? But uh, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, again, to go back to the 2 3 five formation, it was the, you know, the middle of the three halves, uh, half-backs, was the centre-half, and then he was the one who dropped in to form a three-man defence. So it didn't kind of made sense at that time. But um, yeah, I don't think it really works. I mean, it's a bit of an old-fashioned thing. You don't really see it anymore. I think sometimes it does make sense if you look at... I mean, Manchester City have played some games where Fernandinho has gen- genuinely looked like half a centre-back half a centre midfielder according to where the ball is. Not many players can play that role. I mean, Busquets maybe has done it for Barcelona on occasion. I remember Rafael Marquez, also of Barcelona, was very good at doing it. Some of the Dutch sides over the years, that's been a bit of a thing. But I would I'd use it sparingly for quite specific situations for me. Yeah, I wonder if it's something that Leipzig have done a bit this season with Upper Meccano and, and Canate kind of stepping up into midfield a lot and it just... Uh, there's just more space for them to kind of play into. Maybe it's just the fact of them stepping out of a, a three-man back line, but that that whole thing of Fernandinho looking like part midfielder, part centre-back is is something that I kind of thought of when you were you were saying that with the guys at Leipzig. Mm, that's interesting, but it does mean, Michael, that the next time I hear a pundit use the phrase old-fashioned centre-half to essentially describe a, a bruiser, a physical centre-back, with physical dominance and, and not a huge amount else, I can start shouting at the telly. Yeah, I guess so. Although, I mean, in a funny way it works because there was a point in time where that, that player was, it made sense for them to be called a centre-half and it was in the 1970s and they would be, I suppose, probably more physical and less glamorous than you'd get now. So yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. I mean, there's a few of these terms that have changed meaning over the years and, and, and uh, yeah... I guess that is it's a fair objection, Ali. I will allow you that. Interesting that the glossary on defensive players and goalkeepers who we're about to come on to, probably the shortest of the, the three glossaries, but I think has the more unanswered questions within it, which is uh, frustrating but also intriguing. And that's the beauty of, uh, of putting this down on the pod. Uh, let's talk about keepers. Uh, there's not a huge amount of widespread different terms here, I don't think. Certainly uh, not. In the mainstream, I dare say those who analyse goalkeepers for a living uh, have plenty of different sorts of buckets and styles and trends that they can talk about. But for me, the term sweeper-keeper springs to mind immediately. What determines whether or not a keeper is also a sweeper in order to become a sweeper-keeper? It's a good question. It goes back to to what I said earlier about the kind of different different, uh, definitions of of sweeper in different countries. In Italy, initially, it was purely a a player who did sweep up behind their defence in a defensive sense, and in Germany it became a kind of attacking player. I think when we talk about sweeper-keeper, we're talking about the former. For me, it's just about a player who is tidying up behind a player who's got beaten or just making interceptions as the last line of defence. It tends to go hand-in-hand, hand, I suppose. Those those type of sweepers, sweeper-keepers sorry, usually are good on the ball as well, but I'm not sure that someone like Jordan Pickford, I don't think is out of his goal much covering in behind the defence, but is very good in possession. I don't. I personally wouldn't call him a sweeper-keeper. I think he's just a standard keeper who happens to be good at distribution. So yeah, for me, it's someone playing outside their box, Manuel Neuer-esque, rather than necessarily what they're doing in possession. So there might be, Tom, an aspect to this, which is down to the player's traits, but also it feels like 
this is a bit of a function of the team that you play for as well, specifically how high their defensive line is and probably the amount of time they spend in the opposition's half. It feels unlikely that you'd have like a bottom half Premier League goalkeeper being considered a sweeper keeper just because of a lack of opportunity to, to be that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I looked at um, FB Ref, which has some nice public metrics on the number of defensive actions a goalkeeper makes outside of their their own area. And um, I mean, Alisson for Liverpool has made the most this season with 40 and he's got the highest distance from goal when he makes them of around, I think, 19 yards, which is the most in the Premier League and the least is uh, of kind of like the main group of keepers who are starting the majority of the games is a Rui Patricio for Wolves, who's only made five. And again, the distance from his box when he does venture outside is quite short. So, yeah, I think what you know, very much like you said, Ali, one is a product of covering a far greater amount of space for your team, and you, there's more requirement for you to to step out and cover cover it when the defender's not there. And then again, for Wolves, you know, they sit deep. There's a three-man defence. There's enough bodies there such that you don't actually have to do this stuff all that often. Only if the uh, um, the play dictates it at times. So, could we call Allison the most attacking goalkeeper in the Premier League this season? Perhaps I think we could definitely we could have a whole debate on him versus Edison and uh, and this kind of do you have a, a you know the ball playing sweepers and Pickford's just a ball playing line keeper as we'll come on to and things like that so um, yeah if we wanted to really expand upon the um, the terms we use for goalkeepers uh, I reckon we we could try to I I honestly I mean Matt um, Matt Ryan got a goal involvement didn't he for Eddie Nketiah's equaliser against Fulham that's pretty. Uh... In the opposition box, I should mm. say. That's a pretty attacking goalkeeper for me. I think the most attacking we've arguably seen this season is is Bern Leno going up for a header uh, and uh, the weekend for giving away a foul in the process but probably throwing himself at it, which I hope was, lo- was logged as a shot <laughs> just so we can, can get running shot map at the end of the and, season. And did you see what he did? The goalkeepers do this so much. They go up for the initial corner, the ball gets cleared and what do they do? They forget about the offside trap. And they always have two seconds to be like, oh my God, I'm in completely the wrong position and have to get back onside. Really yeah. enjoy that. <laughs> but I mean, that one with Leno, I think Duncan Alexander flagged it. It was like the first time he'd seen a goalkeeper stay up for like phase two and three of a set piece in, in you know, as long as you can remember, which uh, those are always the things that we don't have any logging of, but they're definitely the, the most, the moments when you're looking and you're watching a match and you're like, this is something I haven't actually seen for a while. And it's quite nice to have a bit of um, a novelty at the moment. Yeah, we had a nice one in the Championship last midweek as well. Wickham sending up their goalkeeper, David Stockdale. They weren't even losing the game. The score was one all at the time because they're so threatened by relegation that it got to a point where they just had nothing to lose. Um, He missed the initial corner, I think it was, and then stayed up, sort of obviously didn't really know what to do, like you said, Michael, which is understandable. They're very rarely in that position. And instead of getting back in the middle for the second cross, he stayed on the edge of the box as if he was Paul Scholes chested down the headed clearance hit a volley on the bounce which was handled for a penalty which was scored for the winner so that was pretty that that was pretty good I mean whenever you see a goal I mean my favorite example of this and I can't believe I actually saw this was Classico last season the first one which I think Barcelona they must have lost by one goal because of the situation and Ter Stegen went up for a wide free kick it wasn't a corner and he made a dummy run (laughs) He, he he went up and he made a run towards the near post, clearly just to drag defenders away so that there'd be space at the far post. I thought that was fantastic. I mean, anything where a goalkeeper enters play, you know, enters, enters the outfield play is brilliant. My favourite substitution in Premier League history, and you think I'm going to say Stuart Pearce putting <laughs> David James up front, I'm not. 
it was Jose Mourinho bringing on Demba Barr in place of Eden Hazard in a game at the Etihad when Chelsea were winning 1-0 with about three minutes to go because he knew Joe Hart would come up for a corner and he wanted a tall player to mark Joe Hart. So he brought on Demba Barr specifically to mark <laughs> the opposition goalkeeper at a set piece, which is that brilliant. That is excellent. I've so little to say about goalkeeper terms for our glossary that we've just ended up talking about goalies scoring goals. Uh, I think we can all buy into that. But you have got one thing to tell us, Michael. My question to you, what do we call a goalkeeper that isn't a sweeper keeper? Are there any other terms? Yeah, I've heard in, in Germany they sometimes say line keeper. I mean, Jens Lehmann used this quite disparagingly about Oliver Kahn. <laughs> when there was a big debate about the, the two of them ahead of World Cup 2006. Uh, Lehman, as we know, was um, more eccentric than Khan, should we say. Khan was very old school, wasn't he? He was a good shot stopper. He would stay on his line. Uh, Lehman obviously liked playing a bit and play acting a bit. Um, and so, yeah, he used the phrase line keeper, which I quite like. Um, I'm not sure I would necessarily use it. I'm not sure there's... These days, we probably don't have such big differentiations of goalkeeping style. Um, but I guess you could potentially use it in a England context. I guess Nick Pope is a line keeper, isn't he? He's not used to sweeping. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure there's that much need to use it. Are we trying to say then that, that line keeper is, uh, is layman's term? Yeah, that is excellent, Tom. That is <laughs> I also think... Good. There's just, never been a, an adverb thanks. to sum up a football player better than when you said Lehman used the term disparagingly. I feel like he, I feel like he, <laughs> yeah. he lives his life disparagingly where possible. I mean, I, I guess the other the other way of saying this. I mean, if we if we're trying to talk about a goalkeeper who excels in traditional goalkeeping aspects but doesn't sweep, doesn't distribute the ball, we say well, he's a good shot yeah. stopper. <laughs> you know, like that, which, which kind of implies what he's not good at. And then obviously the the kind of classic riposte to that is, well, that's his job, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Which I guess, you know, that then shows how the position has developed away from just being a shot stopper. Oh, so many traumatic flashbacks to conversations about the England number one jersey over the last few years. Uh, all of these <laughs> phrases have come up at a number of different uh, opportunities. Guys, thank you so much. Really enjoyed finishing our three-part series on the glossary of football positions and roles. So thank you so much for all of your, your insight and in the case of the last 10 minutes, just uh, your, your entertainment more than anything else. Of course, while I get to pick your brains for about an hour a week on this pod, uh, you're doing so much work on the athletic site, so much writing as the season starts drawing to a close. I know that you will both be part of a number of deep dives for big moments over the next few weeks, probably some Champions League analysis and much more as well. So um, we would just point the listeners towards your writing and, and that of your colleagues as well. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking. If you're not already a subscriber of The Athletic, that is the place to go. You'll pay £3.99 for the first six months of your annual subscription. Please do sign up today. That's also where you can hear this podcast and so many of the other athletic podcasts, all of them, uh, in fact, ad-free on the athletic site and app. So ad-free content on there if you're a subscriber of The Athletic. But, I mean, over the course of this podcast, we've mentioned goal-scoring goalkeepers. And let me point you in the direction of an old-school zonal marking episode. Because my favourite thing about doing this pod over the last 18 months or so now is how many of our old podcasts are still relevant because they weren't 
of that time of that week. Uh, so do go back if you haven't and look at the start of our back catalogue, if you will. Pick out a few episodes that tickle your fancy. One on the away goals rule could be particularly relevant over the next week or two, but the one on goal scoring goalkeepers as well with Jack Lang, I believe, as our special guest was a real delight. So thank you so much for tuning in this week. Any questions, queries or problems, please do get in touch with us on Twitter. We'd be delighted to hear your suggestions for future episodes and future topics as well. You've been listening to The Zonal marking podcast brought to you by the athletic we'll talk again next week the athletic